Welcome to Reader, I Murdered Him, a real podcast about fake crimes. Every week, I'll tell you about one of my favorite books, but like it's true crime. This podcast isn't spoiler-free, so listen at your own risk. Today, I'm going to be diving into the problem England has been dealing with for decades. Obviously, we all know what the problem is, but just for the sake of this episode, I'll give you a quick rundown. Starting in the early 1970s or late 1960s, England became plagued with a variety of otherworldly visitors. And even though it's been roughly 50 years since this problem of the dead returning from the beyond in spectral form to haunt the living en masse, we don't seem to be getting any closer to finding a solution or a source for this problem. Additionally, we don't have any real understanding of why the problem is concentrated in England, but doesn't seem to exist in other countries. The US, for example, while you might hear stories about ghosts if you follow any paranormal or weird news podcasts, doesn't have enough visitor activity for ghost sightings to warrant space in the major news publications like the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune. So the problem seems especially concentrated in England, possibly because England has a longer history of burying the unsettled dead and then building and reshaping cities on top of them. Possibly because England as a country is just more haunted than everywhere else, or because of a long history of conquering and injustice. Or because it's just very unlucky. Whatever the reason, the citizens of England have been plagued by specters for 50 years, and the only people equipped to fight them are those citizens under the age of 18 who have been born gifted with a second sight. These psychic abilities can range from being able to see ghosts, to feeling their presence and intention, seeing glowing death trails, or hearing ghostly whispers. And these gifted children and teens go on to work for psychic agencies that specialize in clearing haunted locations and protecting against those spirits whose goal is to cause harm to the living. Now, whether the ghosts have agency or act with consciousness of who they were in life is another thing that's still up for debate, and a question that we really don't have enough information to answer with any degree of certainty. While there does certainly seem to be a tie to angry spirits and ghosts who have suffered or committed great acts of violence, there's no indication that death by violence guarantees the person will come back as a spirit. In fact, any great emotion that would tie a dying person to the world of the living can be enough to trigger a haunting. Then again, some historic ghosts have long outlived any of the people, places, even the aftermath of events that would have occurred during their lifetimes. And yet they still cling to a world that has been totally reshaped by time and can be some of the strongest and most dangerous specters any human can encounter. What we do know for sure, thanks to research by agencies like Fitz and Rothwell, is that all ghosts or spirits fall into three categories, a type one, type 2, 
or type three. Type one hauntings are the ones that are the easiest to deal with. While these types of hauntings can still be dangerous to the living people in their vicinity, they're relatively easy for psychic agents to disperse. These hauntings might include glowing mists or human figure ghosts that are faint or flickering. Type ones aren't always dangerous and may just exist in a space as scared or unwilling to interact with humans as humans are with them. And while these hauntings don't necessarily pose a risk to humans, it is considered safer to disperse them before they coalesce into type two hauntings, or humans are accidentally hurt by any of the peripheral effects of the haunting. Now type two hauntings are almost always dangerous and can in many instances be deadly. Being ghost touched or ghost locked can lead the living to enter into a state of perpetual vegetation that medical research has yet to find any cure for. But these hauntings can also lead to death in more traditional ways. Type two visitors can physically interact with humans and can cause death in physical ways, pushing them down the stairs or out of windows. And they can also cause severe and overwhelming senses of despair or desperation that might drive the living insane or to the feeling that self-harm might be the only way to end it. Not much is known about type threes and even agents for the most prominent psychic agencies may never come into contact with one. Um, these type threes are said to be visitors that retain some sense of identity and can if met with a psychic agent with strong enough talents, communicate. And while there are thousands of stories coming out of England in regards to the problem, there is one very specific story we're going to focus on today. This is the story of a building so haunted, some agents lost their lives trying to cleanse the place, and other agencies refused to go anywhere near the grounds. In fact, the only agency willing to tackle this multi-layered Type 2 haunting was the three-person startup, Lockwood & Company, a child-run agency that, according to rumor, had gotten in so deep in debt after a botched cleansing that they were desperate for any job big enough to help them pay off their fines. In fact, the only thing more surprising than the horrors the agents of Lockwood & Company found when they entered into this location were the rumors that not all the evil there was caused by visitors. That's right, today we'll be looking into the Iron Baron himself, John William Fairfax, and the most haunted house in England. I'm Risa P, and this is The Haunting of Coombe Carey Hall. Carey Hall was widely thought of as one of the most haunted buildings in England, and it has a pretty bleak history to back that up. Originally, and this is considered to be by many the source of Coombe Carey Hall's haunting, the house was actually a priory for a group of monks. 
Now, there are a lot of rumors that say that the monks turned away from God and began to worship Satan. In fact, this was the reason local nobles gave for their storming the priory and executing the monks before taking over the land and priory building that would become Coomkerry Hall. And I've tried to research this and go back to any original source documents I can find about the priory here, but there's nothing that confirms or refutes this claim with any certainty. There were monks who went about their lives here, but by all accounts, they were just monks. Work, prayer, silence. They kept to themselves, and people in the community kept to themselves. There's really no way of knowing if their lives of silent prayer turned into devil worship. And the men of the aristocracy who led the charge against them had a pretty strong interest in the land the priory was placed on, so they aren't exactly unbiased recorders of history. What I can find, and what is known with certainty, is that every single one of those monks was murdered, and their ghosts still haunt Coomkerry Hall. In fact, in those reported cases where psychic agents have gone into the house in an attempt to cleanse it, the monks always show up. But the possibly devil-worshipping, possibly innocent monks aren't the only ghosts in Coomkerry Hall. The Red Duke is also one of the most notorious residents here. The rumors about him were that he was a violent sadist who engaged in nightly torture for entertainment and lined the hall's main staircase with the skulls of his victims, each skull being used as a votive for a candle. And according to those unlucky enough to be stuck in Coomkerry Hall after dark, but lucky enough to make it out to safety, you can hear the screams of each of those skulls as soon as the sun goes down, giving it the nickname of the Screaming Staircase. Notably, there's also a room on the second floor, dubbed the Red Room, because at night it would fill with otherworldly blood and anyone trapped inside wouldn't survive to see the light of day. Add this to the dozens of other reports of murders, mysterious deaths, and suicides that plagued Coomkerry Hall's history, and it's not really a surprise that the building had been unoccupied for decades. Now, there is also a newer addition to Coomkerry Hall, where the current owner, Jonathan William Fairfax, would occasionally spend time. But this addition was heavily fortified with iron and other protections against ghosts, so the two halves of the hall rarely mixed. There's also a caretaker living on the grounds, but in a separate building, and that one has no reported history of any hauntings. Now, before we move on to what happened at Coomkerry Hall when Lockwood and Company got involved, I do think it's important to give a little background on Jonathan William Fairfax himself. Of course, this name is probably not unfamiliar to you. He's one of the world's richest men, a position he solidified thanks to the problem, and the fact that he's the owner of Fairfax Iron, a company that currently specializes in buildings fortified with iron to prevent visitors from entering, as well as the manufacturing of iron products that can contain and neutralize sources to prevent visitors from coming out in the first place. And before his sudden death, John Fairfax was also leading a charge into the research and development of equipment to help both with the containment of visitors and sources, 
um, but also for psychic agents to be more protected as they entered locations where a source was unknown or where visitors were particularly violent. There were also rumors that he was engaged in some other more secret research projects, particularly with the Fitz and Rotwell agencies, but I haven't been able to confirm any of these rumors. So what you should take away from this is that John William Fairfax was a man who had pretty limitless resources and reach. He was powerful. So him choosing to go to a relatively unknown, really a relatively infamous agency like Lockwood & Co. says a lot about how desperate he was to get Coombe Carey Hall cleansed and to keep whatever really was going on behind the walls of this mansion quiet. The larger agencies might have had bigger teams and better equipment, but they weren't known for keeping their mouths shut when they cleansed a particularly difficult or famous location. Lockwood and company was desperate enough for the money a job this large would bring that they were willing to accept Fairfax's terms without much recorded negotiation. Even when Fairfax told them one of the requirements would be that the team operate without any kind of flair, flares and salt bombs being one of the last resorts a psychic agent has when up against a particularly dangerous visitor where a source was not readily available or easily discoverable. But Lockwood & Co. did take the job, and they did accept the rather unorthodox terms. And that's where things at Coombe Carey Hall start to get really interesting. Are you experiencing paranormal activity in your home? Have you tried iron, salt, and ghost lights to no avail? Then avail yourself of the Fitz Agency, the oldest and most well-respected psychic agency in the business. Founded by Marissa Fitz, the only known agent to be able to communicate with Type 3 visitors, the Fitz Agency remains the leader in paranormal research and source containment. So don't be fooled by flashy, flash-in-the-pan agencies. When you want your visitors sorted out the right way the first time, you know who to choose. The Fitz Agency. We won't set your house on fire. And we definitely didn't start the problem. Lockwood & Company, as I said before, is a small psychic agency with only three recorded employees. Anthony, Lucy, and George are all registered psychic agents, but none of them are yet old enough to have reached the threshold for their talents to begin to fade. And unlike some of the larger, more well-known agencies, they refused to work with an adult overseer. So it's not surprising that an agency run by children would be more than willing to take on a job seen by many agencies as a death sentence. And also not entirely a surprise that the agency would have found itself in a position to need to take on a job like this, based on fines from a previously botched cleansing. In fact, prior to their association with Coombe Carey Hall, Anthony Lockwood and Lucy Carlyle got in serious trouble with DPROC, the Department of Psychical Research and Control, for using a flashbang in a house filled with old papers and files that caused serious damage to the house. This was actually the fine the Lockwood agency was trying to pay off with the Coombe Carey Hall money. 
But the interesting thing about that particular assignment is that Lucy came into contact with a type 2 ghost that was later identified to be Annabelle Ward, a young actress who went missing years earlier and who had always been presumed to have been murdered by her boyfriend. But with no body, the police were never able to make a case against him stick. Now, the ghost of Annabelle Ward, like the ghosts of many murder victims, was a violent entity that was already responsible for the murder of one living human, causing a man to take a fall down the stairs in his home, Annabelle's former home and current resting place. So it was very important that the Lockwood agency contain her source, which was thought to be her body, found in a wall behind the chimney shortly before Anthony and Lucy's misadventure with a flare. But new information, starting with rumors and later confirmed by a first-person account written by Lucy Carlyle herself, states that the source was actually Annabelle's locket, a gift given to her by her lover, also the man who killed her. And because of Lucy's connection with Annabelle, solving this unsolved murder had become very important to the Lockwood agency. So keep that in mind. It's going to come up again later. But for now, back to John Fairfax and the infamous Coombe Carey Hall. The Lockwood agency arrives on the premise of Coombe Carey Hall several hours before sunset and are given a tour of the grounds by the resident groundskeeper. They're offered the study to set up their investigation as it's been fortified by Fairfax Iron to keep visitors away and gives them a relatively safe space to investigate or retreat should the resident ghosts at the hall become too much for them. In fact, John Fairfax has even generously offered to pay them their £60,000 just for setting foot in the building and doing a preliminary investigation. They would get even more if they cleansed the house and sealed the source of the hauntings. But Fairfax understands what a difficult job that would be. And just by coming to the hall at all, the Lockwood agency's money troubles are over. It's a deal that almost sounds too good to be true. But as night falls, the hall is still relatively silent. The main staircase doesn't scream, and other than a few minor apparitions, type 1 nonviolent ghosts, the Lockwood group doesn't run into anything dangerous. Although they do notice the temperature begins to drop, which is a sure sign that the house is haunted. But it isn't until the Lockwood trio reach the second floor and enter the Red Room where things begin to go wrong. And while normally there'd be some deep rack records about what went on in a situation like this, the information on the cleansing of Coombe Carey Hall is pretty sparse, a sure sign that something about this case is being covered up. Luckily for you, I have a first-hand account from Lucy Carlyle, and while there's no way to verify her account, I feel confident that even if sections have been embellished for entertainment purposes, the majority of what she's recorded is the real story. As the trio enters into the Red Room, George spent a pretty large amount of the agency's money on a ghost-proof doorstop to ensure that they would have a safe line of retreat from the Red Room, where some of the most serious hauntings were reported to have occurred. But this solid piece of iron is moved after all three agents enter the room, a feat no ghost, even a strong type 2, should be able to accomplish. 
And the three agents are forced inside a ring of iron at the center of the room as blood, technically a ghost plasma with the appearance of blood, begins to drip from the ceilings and the walls. The problem here is that the whole room is essentially a ghost, and being touched by the blood-like plasma would have the same effects of ghost lock as being touched by a human-shaped ghost. And for all three agents to fit inside the iron circle, they've had to make it large. Too large. The protection of the iron doesn't extend into the very center of the circle. And while things are looking pretty dire here, Lucy's confident there must be a secret door somewhere. They've looked over the blueprints of the house, and there's a fair bit of space unaccounted for. Going off of this, Lucy manages to find the hidden door, and the three Lockwood agents begin to descend down the real screaming staircase. While the legends put the Red Duke's work at the main staircase of the house, the reality is that the screaming staircase descends into the depths of what would have been the monk's old priory, and the psychic screams that fill Lucy's heads are from the monks themselves, who have been tortured and led down this staircase to die. Whether or not they deserved this punishment for acts of Satan worship have never fully been confirmed. At this point in the haunting, the monks do materialize in physical form and try to lure the Lockwood agents into a well at the center of the room, where the monks' corpses remain, the source that fuels every other haunting of Coombe Carey Hall. It's at this point in the records where Anthony Lockwood produces a smuggled flare and tosses it to the bottom of the well, effectively neutralizing the source and saving the lives of all three Lockwood agents. And this point would seem to be the end of the story. Three agents have gone into a haunted house and neutralized it. While there would still be some smaller hauntings to clean up, there's really nothing life-threatening here anymore. But there would be a death before the sunrise. John Fairfax would officially die of a cardiac event, according to both medical and DPRAC records of the event. But there's no note of what he was doing at Coombe Carey Hall, especially before sunrise, or why his body was found in the study Lockwood and company were using as their base. So for this, again, we have to refer to Lucy Carlyle's first-person account. And according to her, it was during their initial search of the house that Anthony Lockwood stumbled onto a secret. Fairfax had always been rich, and as a young man, he lived a life of relative ease, spending a lot of time around artists and actors, even appearing in a few plays himself, including one very particular staging of Hamlet, where he played Hamlet against Annabel Ward's Ophelia. Their relationship remained a relative secret, as the Fairfax family would have been none too pleased to have an actress in the family. But by the few accounts that exist, Annabelle and John were in love. But that love wasn't always kind. John Fairfax could be abusive both verbally and physically, and Annabelle was frequently cited trying to cover up bruises. And again, while there is no official record of John Fairfax confessing to Annabelle's murder or any remaining evidence to tie him to that crime, we do have the reports of Lockwood and company saying that Fairfax did admit not only to Annabelle's murder, 
but to luring the agency to Coomkerry Hall in the hopes that the house would kill them, making it impossible for them to gain any more information from Annabelle's ghost that might point to him as her murderer. And that cardiac event? Well, Lucy Carlyle had taken to wearing Annabelle's locket encased in silver glass and could feel the psychic power inside it begin to rise as soon as Fairfax began talking about the night of Annabelle's death. So she released the ghost from the locket and Annabelle, who would never see justice in the world of the living, took her justice from the world beyond. And that's the story of Coombe Carey Hall and Annabelle Ward. Thank you for listening to Reader, I Murdered Him. Today's episode was based on The Screaming Staircase, book one of the Lockwood & Co. series by Jonathan Stroud. I have to admit, I actually started this series after watching the Netflix show Lockwood & Co. and didn't realize it was based on a book until the very end. As far as adaptations go, I think Netflix did a fantastic job of adapting The Screaming Staircase, although I think they merged a few of the subsequent books as well, Um, I don't know for sure because I haven't read those yet, Um, but this is a rare case of the TV show and the source book series both being charming, entertaining, and very well done. I'd recommend both of them. The only bad thing about the Netflix series is that it was canceled after season one, so there are a lot of cliffhangers you'll never get answers to unless you read the books. So if you don't like not knowing how something ends, that makes your choice pretty easy. There are five books in the series, and it is complete, so you can binge the mystery from start to finish. And once you've finished reading, come talk about this week's book in the Reader I Murdered Him podcast book club on Goodreads. There is no reading list at the Stay at Home Creative and won't be for the summer. Um, I am planning on putting out a newsletter for the summer, um, even though it's late, talking about this more, but I'm not going to go into the summer with the books I'm covering in the podcast planned out. I want to spend more time focusing on reading for fun and fitting the podcast into that. I do this podcast in my free time. Um, There's no money in it. So it's really important to me that it stays fun. And recently it's been feeling more like an obligation and I've been struggling to find the motivation to work on it and keep it going. Um, So anyway, no reading list for the summer at least. We'll see how that goes. I might be changing some other things too, depending on what the new season brings. But in the meantime, if you like this podcast and want new episodes to keep coming, subscribe, rate, or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend about it, or just let me know by sending an email to readerimurderedhimpod at gmail.com or send me a message on Goodreads. You can find all the links down in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And don't forget to come back next week for another episode of Reader, I Murdered Him.
service, Mr. Lee. If you've managed to make it all the way to the end, I do want to let you know that today we have some extra secret bonus content, an original spooky story told by V.P. Once upon a time, there lived a very small birdie and managed to go in a very, very haunted house, but didn't know a house was haunted by a black monster. And a birdie refused to go after I heard Agent. Oh, be worried here, Agent. So, once upon a time, lived a man who always wore the black shirt and never ever went in the haunted house of Jane Murder. But and at moment, Chamberer died, and his spirit was never found, but he died. Guy uh, uh, always wearing black shirts also died and turned into a black fiend. I hope you like this story told by VP. The end. <laughs>